of this video and uh, the ministry that God has allowed us to be a part of in our partnership with Ebony is really uh, sets us up nicely for our scripture reading this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. We have been on a journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're going to be talking about uh, finding joy in God's provision this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. You'll find that on page 982 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of uh, God's Word to call your own, please feel free to take a copy of uh, uh, the, the Scriptures and put your name on it and uh, just receive it as a gift from this church family. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23. Those verses are also up on the screen. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. You ever wonder why Paul just didn't say thanks? He doesn't. Does he? He doesn't. Nowhere in these verses do we hear things like, you know, thank you. Why didn't he why didn't he just say thanks? Thanks for your financial gift. Thanks for your generosity. Thanks. Period. Why didn't he just say that? Instead, it just kind of feels like he was tiptoeing about. You know, he starts, he says, Well, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you revived your concern for me. But at the same time, I'm not saying that you weren't concerned for me. I'm just saying you didn't have the opportunity to show it. 
But at the same time, I'm not saying that I was in need because I've learned contentment through Christ. But at the same time, I want you to know that what you did was kind and this isn't the first time you've been so generous. But at the same time, I'm not saying I wanted something from you. It's that I wanted something for you. So, uh, you know, I'm well supplied, all glory to God, etc., etc. Why didn't he just say thanks? More than one scholar has asked that question. And more than one has mentioned how careful the Apostle Paul is when communicating to the Philippians about their financial gift, this matter of giving and receiving. Verse 15, giving and receiving. In fact, Paul spills more ink on this section of Scripture than he does in uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that magnificent Christ hymn, which is the essence of Christianity. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) I mean, sometimes we preacher types get really nervous when talking about giving and receiving. and, and, And truth be told, Many of us would just as soon skip those sections of Scripture on giving and receiving and and just kind of hope that God's people get it. And you know why, don't you? You know why. We don't want to offend anyone. We we preachers don't want to come across like we're fleecing the flock. I I don't want you to think that... Sarah and I are Champagne Urbana's version of a televangelism couple, and she's going to come out here in a few minutes in big hair, and we're going to have two golden thrones and sit down on them, and you're just going to sit and look at us. We don't want to come. We, let's not go there, okay? <laughs> and so, you know, when I read these verses how Paul responds to the Philippians over their generous and gracious financial support, I'm encouraged that I'm not the only one in the history of Christianity to feel like they have to walk on eggshells over matters of giving and receiving. Thank you, Paul. Which leads to this question. How ought we think about matters of giving and receiving? I mean, when giving and receiving happens for the furtherance of gospel ministry, how does God want us to think about that? Well, these verses address that very question. While other verses in Scripture might speak to the amount that God wants His people to give, these verses address our attitude, our mindset. How God wants us to think, let this mind be in you. Paul's teaching us throughout Philippians. And, and, and I would argue that this comes first. I would argue that, that you know, when you get your heart right and when you get your thinking straight and when you get your mindset matched with Jesus, then the amount, the amount comes. You get your heart right, the amount will be right. And so, what I want us to do as we look at these verses, I want us to, I want us to appreciate and, and adopt and practice Paul's thinking, God's thinking. I want us to get our attitudes right about giving and receiving. So let's look at how Paul thought, and then let's let that challenge how we think. Paul. 
Paul, we come to the end of this letter to the Philippians, and Paul, a Roman citizen, has written this letter. He's under house arrest in the capital city of Rome. He's awaiting trial in Caesar's court for preaching the gospel. Uh, He's allowed to live in a rented house at his own expense. He's chained to a guard, one of the Praetorian Guard, this elite unit of Caesar himself. And a guard changes about every six hours. And so every six hours, Paul gets to preach Christ to a new guard. And, 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 And this went on. Somehow the Philippians found out about Paul's situation, and they took an offering. And they sent that offering with one of their own Christian leaders, a brother by the name of Epaphroditus. And they also sent Epaphroditus as uh, Paul's assistant. Anything Paul wanted or needed while Paul was under house arrest, Epaphroditus would be uh, a gift from the Philippians to, to attend to his needs. And so Epaphroditus arrives and he updates Paul on the church. And then when Paul sent Epaphroditus back to Philippi, Epaphroditus carried this letter, the letter to the Philippians. And so, you know, in chapter 1, Paul speaks of his partnership with the Philippians and their partnership with him in terms of gospel ministry. And, and, and from the very beginning of Philippians, uh, Paul is hinting the joy he feels in Christ over their generous partnership. And, and, then, and then Paul talks about the progress that uh, the gospel has made. Even though he's in chains, the gospel is not chained at all. And the gospel has even cracked into Caesar's household. We read that in our scripture reading. Those of Caesar's household. Um, That phrase, think White House staff. The gospel is getting into the elite levels of government. And then in chapter 2, after updating them on how he is, he urges them to live as citizens of a higher realm. Philippi was this magnificent colony from Rome. And and Paul says, I want you to live as citizens of of a higher realm. We are citizens of heaven, and your church is a colony of heaven on earth. And you live as citizens of that kingdom. And, and Jesus is the standard. That's what's behind Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And, and then he follows up by holding forth two models of Christ-like behavior, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then in chapter 3, Paul bears his fangs to confront the dogs who are teaching the heresy of Jesus plus. Jesus plus as a means to salvation Paul says, no, it's Christ and Christ alone. But then he makes sure they understand that the biggest threat to their health as a church is not from the outside, but from within. And that's why in chapter 4, he appeals, he pleads to two leaders in the church, two sisters in Christ who are at odds with one another. He wants them to be united to have the same mindset. And then we get to this concluding section where Paul more fully expresses his heart in regards to giving and receiving. Verse 15, giving and receiving. Those those actually were very familiar words from the Roman world of business and commerce. Giving and receiving 
That was a phrase that would show up often in commercial transactions, business transactions. And that phrase was also used to describe a deeply entrenched cultural norm in regards to friendships and relationships, giving and receiving. Giving and receiving between people in the first century, just on an interpersonal level, giving and receiving back then involved some very complicated cultural assumptions. And here's what I mean by that. I'm feeling generous. Hey, Eric, come on up here. Come on, just come on up here on stage. You know, you don't look as tall down there as you do up here. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling generous here, all right? So I want to give you something. I want to give you a car, a new one. Okay. Thank you. Open it up. Just pull it out so everybody can see. Isn't that generous of me? Yeah. You bet it is. <laughs> yeah. What's that? He's not going to fit in it. Well, <laughs> well, he might fit me in it. So, anyway. So, would you, would, would you receive that? Yes. Okay, you would. Great. Now, stay up here. Okay. We're not done. All right. You will receive that. Okay, great. Okay, now you owe me. Okay. Now you owe me. And, furthermore... Furthermore, because I initiated the gift-giving, that makes me socially superior. Okay? Yeah. And, 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 and furthermore, there, there, see, what you're going to need to do now is to be thinking about this word reciprocity, reciprocate. So I gave you something, now you need to, and you might start with maybe a letter of thanksgiving, a that, that would show as a receipt that you received my beneficence. That's what that would mean, okay? So, and, and, and oh, uh, and by the way, if you don't receive my gift, that makes us enemies, okay? So, anyway. Right. Have a good day, all right? God bless you. Really. Okay, that's how... That's how it worked in the first century. You say, no. Yes. Yes, absolutely. A guy, just what I did right now, a guy wrote his PhD on just that very thing of giving and receiving. His name was uh, Peterson, and uh, the uh, book is called uh, Paul's Gift from Philippi. Very, very interesting in terms of the, the, the cultural freight that accompanied the type of giving and receiving and, and the fact that the giver was perceived as this socially superior person and uh, the fact that you wouldn't, you, see, you wouldn't, you wouldn't refuse that gift because of the implications and, oh my goodness, it was just, it was just like really, really nuts. And that's, but that's kind of how it worked back then. And, and, and you might say, well, you mean gifts, you know, gifts weren't given like no strings attached? 
No, there were always strings attached. Why else would you give a gift in the first century if there weren't strings attached? That's, that's just the mindset. And listen, that atmosphere was as prevalent in the first century as free speech is for us today. I mean, that's just how it was. And so, so now we have an idea why Paul is so very, very careful about discussing matters of giving and receiving. And, and, and you know, I don't know that we are that far removed, right, from this patronage, you scratch my back, my, I scratch yours type of giving. I'm thinking of Washington, aren't you? I mean, uh, and, or, or, you know what? I'm, I'm also thinking of Christmas time, right? Oh, wow. We have to give them a gift. Well, they give us a gift last year. That kind of, you know. Oh, man. So, so Paul is careful. Paul's careful in terms of how he word crafts what he has to say in these verses. So in verse 10, he affirms their support, right? Verse 10, now at length you have revived your concern for me. That, that word is from the plant world. And it refers to trees and flowers which blossom in the spring after a long winter season. Paul is saying to the Philippians, your gift is like the first day of spring. And then in, in verse 11, you know, Paul makes sure he's not misunderstood. He says, now I'm not in need I'm not in need because, you know, I don't, see, back then, if you expressed a need, that would, that would easily be taken as a request. <laughs> and so Paul is saying, I'm not saying that I was in need because he doesn't want to imply that he's making a request. No. And that would trigger a patron-client scenario that was so prevalent in first century Rome. Instead, Paul says, I've learned and I know it's a sandwich. I've learned, I know, I know, I've learned. He's talking about contentment. I've learned the secret. He's, he's using a term that was often used of mystery religions in pagan Rome. In fact, he's almost mocking these mystery religions because they have these secretive ceremonial initiation rites. And, and Paul says, my initiation is from life. My learning came from being beaten and shipwrecked and lost at sea and being pelted and pummeled by stones and then dragged outside of a city and being left for dead. Life was my classroom. And God let those things happen to teach me to depend on him more and more. For me to live is Christ. And that's why Paul insists that his joy was not in their gift, but rather in Christ. Paul's contentment is in Christ. Church family, contentment is not a spiritual gift. It's a spiritual skill. And we must learn it. And you do not learn it overnight. You learn it over, over a life, over seasons of mastering and practicing what it takes to depend upon the headmaster, Jesus Christ. And some of you are suffering hardship right now, and you think God is mad at you. 
And these verses are helping us understand that you're just in, you're just in God's character academy, God's contentment academy. You're learning Philippians 4.13. I can do all things, and, and please don't misread that as the Superman verse in the Bible. What Paul is saying is, I can do all these things. What things? The abundance things. The need things. The plenty things. The hunger things. I can do all these things. I can do poverty and I can do prosperity through him who gives me strength. So stay in school. Do not withdraw. Go to class. And, and, and at the same time, in verse 14, Paul affirms what they did, you know. And on more than one occasion, the Philippians sent help. And yet, he wants to be clear. I'm not saying I was looking for a gift. What's he looking for? Verse 17. I'm looking for the fruit that increases to your credit. Credit. That's a great term. It's a term from the world of accountancy. It's a term that refers to the science of commercial accountancy. Paul says, I'm seeking what can be added to your ledger. And then in verse 18, Paul affirms the integrity of Epaphroditus. When he says, I have received full payment. Epaphroditus carried this large gift from Philippi to Rome. Did it all get there? Absolutely. Paul is affirming that. Epaphroditus is a man of God. He has not skimmed off the top. Were they wondering that he would? No. Paul's just affirming. The gift came. The gift was received. All of it. You see what's going on here? You see? Paul Paul is thinking, how can I acknowledge their kindness without getting tangled in the first century Roman world of giving, receiving, patronage, I scratch your back, you scratch mine stuff. Paul very kindly and very clearly says, we're not doing the patron-client model. We're not. I cannot and I will not treat matters of giving and receiving the way Rome does. And so when he receives this gift from Epaphroditus, it's not like he's receiving it from someone who is his social superior. Now, I'm not your client and you're not my benefactor. That's not where we're going. And why? Well, because as far as Rome is concerned, giving and receiving is about an exchange between two parties. But as far as the gospel goes, there aren't two parties, but three. You see that here? There's Christ, there's Paul, there's the Philippians. The gospel brings Christ into the picture. And when Christ enters the picture, everything changes. Everything changes. And that's our big idea. That's what I want you to get from these verses. Jesus Christ changes everything when it comes to giving and receiving. When Jesus shows up, when Jesus appears in the midst of a congregation and the congregation and the ministers and, and that financial support that happens, those who give the financial support, those who receive the financial support, when he is in the midst of that, 
everything changes. When he is in the midst of a congregation and they're missionaries. When he's in the midst of a congregation and a, and a community project. When he's in the midst of that, everything changes. Christ Christ changes the giving side of the picture. Christ changes the receiving side of the picture. Christ changes how we see ourselves. Christ changes how we see him. And Christ changes how we see the gift itself. Jesus Christ changes everything when it comes to giving and receiving. I want you to think how Jesus changes the picture regarding those who give and those who receive. You see, Paul's saying in these verses, in Christ, we're not clients and we're not patrons. We're not. Paul says that in Christ, we are fellow servants. We are slaves of Jesus. Because of Christ, we are partners. Partners in gospel ministry. Partners in grace. Partners in the Spirit partners in suffering, and partners in financially supporting the progress of the gospel. We're partners. When Christ enters the picture, we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. When Christ enters the picture, we are citizens of heaven. When Christ enters the picture, we are saints. All the saints greet you. All the saints. Why? Because we're in Christ. You see how that changes everything? You see? So, so everything you do and everything I do, because we're partners, affects us. Affects us. So how I preach and how I pastor and how I conduct my life within these walls and outside of these walls, that affects us. Us. And the same is true for you how you conduct your life, how you do business, how you work with your colleagues, how you do marriage and how you do family and how you do parenting, it affects us. Why? Because we're partners. Partners in this gospel enterprise. That's how God sees it. Can, can we see it that way? And when Christ enters the picture, it not only changes how we view ourselves, it also changes how we view him. You see, the gospel teaches us that in matters of giving and receiving, like Rome, there is a benefactor. Oh, yes. There is a patron. Like Rome, there is one who is superior. But it's not Epaphroditus. And it's not some silly guy giving away a model car. And it's not the church at Philippi. Do you know who the ultimate benefactor, the ultimate patron, the, uh, the, the definitive initiator of all that is? You know who that is? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. All giving originates from him. Isn't that why Paul says, he who began a good work in you, he began the good work in you, and he'll be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul can say, my joy is not in your offering. My my mega joy, I rejoice greatly 
in the Lord, he says. My mega joy is not in your offering. My mega joy is in Christ. My joy is not in my circumstances. My joy is in Christ. My joy is not in my checkbook. My joy is in Christ. My joy is not in my plenty, and it's not in my poverty. My joy is in Christ. I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. Can you say that? We need to say, we need to keep preaching that to ourselves over and over again because we live in a culture that wants us to bow to Rome and they will not relent. They won't. You know, we all live, we all live, if only I had blank lives. We do. And whatever sits on the other side of your if only, that's really your source of contentment. So what is that? What is your source of contentment? And how does that source shape the way you assess your life? And how does it affect the way you look at yourself and relate to others and think about God? How does that inform the little and the big decisions that you make every day? What are you really living for? Can you say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. That, that's, that's what citizens of heaven need to learn to say. Our picture changes because Jesus shows up. He changes how we view one another. He changes how we view him. And guess what? He changes how we view the gift itself. What does Paul call their gift in verse 18? A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Wow. So, just as God is the ultimate giver, <laughs> Just as God is the origin of all giving, God is also the ultimate recipient. He's the final recipient of all that's being given. These gifts are offerings, fragrant to him. And here's the glory of grace. This reciprocity that we talked of earlier, this reciprocity that Rome so fiercely protected. Well, there's also reciprocity in gospel giving too. There is. The reciprocity is from God to his people. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That is God who provides for and through his people God promises that he will supply every need. Every need, not every luxury, not every extravagance, not every indulgence, but every need. And he will do so according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My goodness. How has Christ changed your picture of giving and receiving. How's he changed your picture? 
Are you letting him do that? Are you letting him, in, someone is going to inform your thinking about giving and receiving. And if we don't intentionally listen to Christ, we're going to be overwhelmed by the, by the blabbing of this world. There's a way in which you and I are always viewing ourselves as either a container or a conduit for the money that we are given. Either, either we want it to stop with us or we think of ourselves as a pipeline and we find joy that the money we've been given can bless and benefit the lives of others. But, but, but how are we still like Rome? Well, listen. What do you think might happen if we thought of ourselves not as patrons or clients, but as brothers and sisters, as partners in this gospel business? What do you think? What if we could remember that Christ is our ultimate benefactor? And, and, and what if we could remember that his riches are not in gold or in real estate, but in glory? And what if we remembered here, my goodness, how, how relevant as we're about to approach the all-in initiative over the next two months, my goodness, what if we could remember that the largest giver for the all-in initiative will be none other than Jesus Christ himself. What if we could remember that? And what would happen if we viewed these monies as sacrifices and offerings to the living God? What if, what if we realized that, that, that whatever money we have is not so much to make sure that our little kingdom of one works but to connect us by grace to the work of God's big sky kingdom. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. How else can you explain the rise of Christianity? How, how else can we explain that? You know, 30 years ago, uh, I was a senior in college. 30 years ago. 30 years ago. The senior in college. 30 years ago, Sarah and I were engaged. 30 years ago. My goodness. My, how the time has just gone by, you know. And I've lived through that span of time. Lived through what's happened in our country and in the world since then. Wow. 30 years. In that same amount of time, the gospel exploded from a small country the size of New Jersey to the Roman Empire, a landmass comparable to the United States. Within 30 years, within 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the gospel had been carried to all parts of the civilized world. Within 30 years, Christ had been preached in the most splendid, powerful, and corrupt cities. Within 30 years, churches were planted in, in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Philippi, and at Rome. Within 30 years, the gospel had spread in Arabia, and Asia Minor, in Greece, and Macedon, and Italy, and Africa. Within 30 years, it had traveled to Rome and had secured a foothold even in Caesar's household. Within 30 years, 
the gospel began to overturn every bloody altar and every pagan temple. Within 30 years, the gospel would bring under its influence people of office and rank and power. Within 30 years. And all of this was accomplished by Hebrew fishermen. Unlearned. Uneducated. Except for the Apostle Paul. These were leaders without learning. They had neither wealth, nor armies, nor allies. They were taught only by the Holy Spirit, armed only with the power of God, victorious only because Christ was their captain, and the world acknowledged them as messengers of the Most High. If Christianity is not true, the change brought about by those apostles is the most mysterious, most wonderful event that has ever been witnessed in the world. Christianity's success has never been and never can be accounted for any other reason other than God did it. God did it. When Christ appears, everything changes. Everything. And so my prayer is, Oh, God, do it again. Do it again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And the church said, Amen. Amen.